Well, it's good to be back again, uh, as uh, many of you know, but maybe not all of you, because you may not have been here the last week or so. Um, Fliss and I, we uh, have been on sabbatical for the past three months and uh, have come back, and it's good to be back. We've had a great time away, but it's, it is great to be back. Uh, we, we just feel at home, and we feel a new vigor and vim for the future. Let me just pray, and I want to get straight into the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, you know my heart. You know my heart is to bring glory to Jesus. And sometimes I struggle with that because there are so many distractions, so many other demands on our time, my time. But I pray, Lord God, that this morning that you would, you would give me the great honor and privilege in the midst of this teaching to make Jesus plain, make Jesus known, make Jesus lifted up. And we'll ask it in his name. Amen. You know, while I was away, one of the uh, verses, this is something, just a two-minute summary from last week, one of many things that the Lord spoke to me was, he struck, it was really struck by this verse, verse in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I, it's, it's just, thank you, it's uh, a good verse, I agree, uh, it's worth a whistle, everybody go a whistle. It's a great, great verse, that. And I love that reaction, that's tremendous. Um, and I must have read it a thousand times, if not two thousand, but you know what struck me about it was not just that it says Jesus loved me, but he says, the God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I was just so moved by that. It was just, wasn't just that, yeah, God loves us, but actually Jesus put that love into action and he gave himself for us. And I think being out there in Israel, um, all you know, as often is said about a visit to Israel, you you you, you look at the places, you visit the places, and, and it strikes you just you know a little bit a bit more about the story. You see new things. One of the things I saw was the land, and it really is an inhospitable land for a land growing, flowing in milk and honey, as the Bible calls it. You know, uh, where water is, it's wonderful, but in between, it's absolutely. Arid. It, was, it must have just been such hard work just getting from A to B. And I went, I was at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and of course the disciples walked up there, I drove up there, and then they had this extraordinary experience of this revelation of who Jesus was at the top of Mount Transfiguration. But what blew, blew me away even before I got into the thing was just what a difficult climb that would have been just to get up there. I mean, I would have just been exhausted, you know. And I thought, wow, Jesus, this was hard work. Giving yourself for me and for us was hard work every step of the way. Not just on the odd occasion when you did thus and so, and of course, when you went to the cross, which must have been unbelievable. But actually living there and getting about and saying things to the disciples, we've got to go to the other towns because I need to preach there as well. They must have looked at one another and thought, oh, God, not another hike. Because it, it, it's like that. So the effort and the energy, the, the extraordinary drive that Jesus had, that, and that he was willing to, to do all of this. Then that set me thinking because, of course, being in Israel, um, you know, you, you become uh, even more aware of Jewish history. And of course, as we know from our scriptures, uh, the Jewish nation looks to Abraham and to Moses. Moses is, is one of the great heroes because not only was he what we call a prototype savior, he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, 
But on top of that, he was the giver of the law. And they, they, you know, he, he was the one that went up the mountain and got the Ten Commandments and came down and, and really helped establish you know, the, the embryonic state of Israel. And so he's a great hero. And, and I was thinking about that. And Scripture actually describes him not just as the, 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 the humblest man that has ever walked this earth, great leader, but he was a humble man, but also as the friend of God. And he, he spoke to God face to face, you know, in the tabernacle there in the desert. It must have been amazing. They used to say that as he came out from a meeting with God, he was absolutely radiant. He shone. And he used to have to wear a, a veil because it was just an extraordinary manifestation of the presence of God on him. This, this is a great hero. This is someone to look up to. And yet, it wasn't always like that. Moses was a reluctant savior. And this talk for, for, for Matt and the team, you know, doing the CDs for the podcasts and stuff, this, this talk's called The Reluctant Savior. So let's get into this message this morning. And we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3, 1 to 11. Uh, this comes at a point in the story of Moses. Many of you will know this, but um, one or two might not. That's fine. Uh, Moses was born to a Jewish family, a Hebrew family. Uh, at a very unfortunate time because the Hebrews were really beginning to multiply and they were a slave nation and the host nation, the oppressing nation, the, the Egyptians became alarmed that actually there were so many Hebrews in the land that they could actually, if they got their act together, mount an uprising and, and overthrow the Egypt, Egyptians. And so what happened was there was one of these terrible uh, Old Testament kind of purges where they they ordered all the male children, babies, to, to be slaughtered. And so Moses' mother um, spirited him away, hid him for three months, and then eventually, in, a, in an act of absolute desperation, um, made a little, uh, got a little wicker basket, tarred it up, you know, and, and then just placed him in, in uh, this basket and, and laid him in the river and said, God, look after my son. Act of extreme desperation. Well, as happened, uh, as many of you know, Pharaoh's daughter, no less, comes across him and, and actually ends up raising him as her own son. Uh, he becomes a royal prince. And, and then, as a young, hot-headed young man, instead of driving around in a hot hatch, you know, he, he actually does all, gets up to other, all sorts of other mischief. And one day, he's out and about, and he sees an Egyptian slave driver laying into one of the Hebrews and is so outraged that he actually takes this Egyptian um, slave driver on and, and the result is the Egyptian slave driver is killed. Well, he buries him in the sand. He's very concerned about that. But what makes it worse is that a couple of days later, he breaks up another fight, this time between two Hebrews, and one of the Hebrews, who he doesn't know anything about, says, you're gonna kill me like you did that slave driver, and he was absolutely panic-stricken because he suddenly realized that the word was out there. And sure enough, Pharaoh, his adoptive father, did find out about it, and, and there was a, uh, you know, a, what do they call it, a contract on him to kill him. So he fled. Now, that's his early story, full of events, and you know, Disney, even bless his heart, has made a film of it. Uh, but, but years and years and years and years and years and years later, uh, where, where Moses is literally on the backside of the desert, uh, down there in Sinai, I mean, it's as rough as it can be. And he, at this time, is, a, is no more than a shepherd. The, the, the Egyptian days are long since gone. 
And he's out there tending the flock, and then all of a sudden he spots something which is a little out of the ordinary. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. So, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of a fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not seem to burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go up and see this strange sight. Why doesn't that bush just burn up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses. Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? We're going to stop the story there. Um, I'm going to expound the story a little more now and the next bits of the conversation. But I do commend this story to you and you might like to read the rest of it for yourself. But I, I need to just pull out some points now. The very idea that Moses should go to Pharaoh, not the one incidentally who had tried to kill him, he was, he was dead, this was his successor, but the very idea to Moses that he should go to Pharaoh and say, you know, let my people go, was ridiculous in the extreme. It was just, what? Are you kidding me? You know, you, you, you've got to be joking. And and Moses, who really has, doesn't know God, he's, he's not been living his life as a follower of God, per se. This is just a, a whole crazy new world that is opening up before him. And so he, he says to this voice out of a bush, and he doesn't really know what it is, only that it's happening. He says, you know, there must be some mistake. There must be some mistake. Excuse me, you're talking to the wrong bloke. And this conversation develops. And in this conversation, Moses comes up with five objections as to why he should not be the one to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Now, they're pertinent to the story, and they're interesting and even amusing in some cases. But actually, as I studied this and read this, I thought, do you know what? This could be me talking to God. Because every, I have used every single one of Moses' excuses here in the 21st century as a follower of Jesus to duck the will of God, to avoid pursuing a call or a God's plan or purpose for my life. The first thing then is, is all about Moses' uh, status, his, his self-image, if you like. He, he says, I don't qualify. You know, 
I'm, I don't move in those circles. Excuse me, I'm here with the sheep on the backside of the desert. You know, if I was a, you know, some government minister, if I moved in those circles, well, even then it would be you know, a stretch, but you know, I'm not who you think I am. I can't do what you are asking me to do because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I don't meet with those or talk to those, and besides, Pharaoh will probably kill me if he so much as catches wind of what I did once. So he has this, this kind of... Uh, this sort of protest. Now, God's response to that is quite simply, Moses, (laughs) I am with you. Now, uh, to somebody who had been walking with the Lord for many years, who knew the Lord, who who was, you know, familiar with God's dealings, that might have been a comfort. You know, I have to say, as a follower of Jesus, Frequently, the Lord asks me to do things, and I say, oh, do I have to? And he says, I'm with you, and I'm sort of comforted, uh, but I want to say, well, why don't you do it then, you know? So even though me walking with the Lord, it, it should comfort me more than it does to know that God is with me. But for Moses, who really doesn't know God at this stage, this isn't much of an answer to him. So he comes up with his second um, question, which is actually quite reasonable. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them that God our Father has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, then what shall I tell them? You know, basically, he's saying, well, who are you? you know, it's all very well you saying you're with me, but I don't even know who you are. I mean, what are you? you know, they're going to think I'm crazy. Who are you? He, he, it's a good question. And, and interestingly enough, it's not that God actually um, is offended by that question. Isn't it, isn't it funny? I think sometimes we think that God demands instant, unquestioning obedience. But I've had many conversations with the Lord over the years as I've transitioned into new areas of opportunity or challenge or ministry or difficulty even. And he doesn't seem to mind that. He, he likes good questions. And this actually isn't a bad question. It's all Moses has got is a burning bush saying, you know, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And so Moses asks actually a very good question. Well, well, well who are you? You know, who am I going to say sent me? You know, anyway, and, and you know, the people, you know, if I go to the elders, which was actually, you know, it's funny, Moses is already thinking strategically. He's thinking, well, if I was to do that, what would I do? Well, I'd have to go to the Israelite elders, and then we'd take a little delegation. But no, that's not going to work, because the Israelites are going to say to me, well, who, 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 who is this God that met you in a bush? You know, God Bushy? God Bushy of Sinai, or what is this? You crazy man, come out of the desert looking all hairy and then smell a sheep on you. And so he says, who are, you know, who are you? And God says, God said to Moses, he says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. We could spend a lot of time on that. Interestingly enough, Reading it off the paper, little black and white words, or black words on white paper, it doesn't maybe impact us all that powerfully, but that became the very heart of how the Israelites did and do understand God, Yahweh. It's, it's a kind of a bundling up of that, that I am who I am. And God seemed to think then, and actually history has proved him right, 
that when Moses went with God with him, saying that I am, the great I am has sent me to you, it would be enough. And actually that's what God says to Moses. Look, you go to those Israelites and say that I am has sent you. And you, it will work. They will believe you. They will. And Moses is thinking, oh my gosh, I knew I shouldn't have got out of bed this morning. This isn't going well. Third question. What, 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 what if they don't listen? Verse 4 verse 1, Moses said, what, what if they, he tries, rallies on this point. What, what if they do not believe me or listen and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Okay, the I am has met me and they like that and they will respond to that. But, but suppose they say he didn't meet to you. It's really questioning Moses then. So Moses, that, so, so the Lord says, okay, okay. <sighs> doesn't get cross, doesn't mind the conversation, doesn't mind the debate. He says to Moses, What's that in your hand? He says, my staff. Well, next week I'm going to unpack this next passage a little bit more. But but essentially God gives him a sign, a miraculous sign. Not just one, but two. And in fact promises three. He says, they will listen to you. And here's here's a miraculous sign I'm going to give you. Okay, so we've, you know, I'm going to be with you. When you tell them that the great I am has sent me, they will listen. And if they question who you are, here is a miraculous sign which will simply bear out the fact that you have met with God. So Moses is going, oh, he's got a bad feeling about this. Fourth question. He says to him, but I, I, I can't do this. Verse 10. He says, Lord... Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to yourself. I'm slow of speech and tongue. I'm not equipped. I don't have the gift mix. I've not done the diplomatic training. You know, I've got a stutter. Besides, I wash my hair on Wednesdays, and you're asking me to go on Wednesday. So we've worked through the kind of... You know, the commission and call questions, but now he's saying, well, well look, I, I'm just not the man for the job. How many of us have just felt inadequate to the task that God sets before them? You know, we wriggle and writhe, and this is, and we, we know the grace of God. We wriggle and writhe, don't we? I know I do. But Lord, I can't do that. I, I can't, honestly. You've got the wrong person. You, you know I haven't done the training. I wish I'd paid attention in Linda's 102 class, but I was dozing off or something. And Oh, gosh, where are my notes? You know, panic, panic, panic. What, Moses, what the Lord says to Moses by way of answers, he's, he's very indulgent with Moses. He's obviously decided that Moses is the man. And God says to him, Moses, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. I remember John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, saying on more than one occasion that faith is like going to the top of a high diving board and standing with your toes curled over the edge, looking down into the swimming pool, which is, all of which is scary enough, only to look down and find there's no water in the pool. 
At which point the Lord says, dive and I'll fill the pool as you go down. <laughs> this does not sound like a good deal. You know, it takes faith to climb the ladder. It takes more than faith. I'd be terrified to walk to the edge of the thing, but then to find there'd be no water. And the Lord, the Lord is saying, how much do you love me? Dive and I'll fill the pool on the way down. I mean, it's just, ugh. I, I, I struggle with that. I'm glad to hear from you all after. You struggle with it too, of course. So I, I, it's not, you know, I'm in the place where I, I want to be of service to God. I, I honestly do. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm Chris Lane and I'm a follower of Jesus and have been these many long years. I want to be of service to him, but all too often God seems to ask things of me that are beyond where I am at the moment. And, and I, I find that difficult. But God says, I will help you. Trust me, dive. And thus far, on the few occasions when I have dived, he's been true to his promise. The pool has filled. Okay, I've hit the water with a bit of a splat, but there's been water there. Fifth question, fifth reason why this reluctant savior feels he's the wrong man for the job is, is that he just... He considers what he's just been told. You're going to be with me. When I mention your name, they'll know it. I wasn't sure myself, but you seem to think they will know that name. Uh, they will listen to me because you're going to give me a sign. Uh, you're going to help me speak. Uh, Verse 13, Moses just says, can't you get someone else to do it? sort of dying the death throes of of reluctance please God just get someone else to do it now it's interesting because father's response to this is different the others he's been patient he's, he's listened to concerns but when it's just oh I don't feel like it or no I'd rather not do that or no that doesn't really fit in with my plans it says here Verse 14, and the Lord's anger burned against Moses. That's when the patience thing, and God who is infinitely patient does have, does have, a ba have boundaries. And Moses crossed a boundary then, he crossed a line. It's one thing to have honest doubts and need encouragement and reason. God does not quash conversation or questioning. But when it's, well, you're God, I'm man, and I'm not going to do it. So there. Suddenly, Moses has crossed a line, and there's an issue. There's an issue there. So all of this, if you didn't know the story, and I know many of you do know the story, after all of this, you would think that actually, at that point, Moses got burnt to a crisp, and that was the end of it. But actually, the extraordinary thing is, and it's a wonderful narrative, Wonderful narrative. I do encourage you to look back into that story because Moses actually is a, is a lovely guy. I, I, I'm looking forward to meeting him. And he is a man of integrity and is, he is a man of honesty and, 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 and God takes him. And even though he sends his brother Aaron to be the voice, you know, to, to be the speaker in the partnership when they go to Pharaoh, actually Moses kind of 
steps in and starts negotiating, just as God, I suspect, knew he would. And Aaron sort of gets sidelined. And, and Moses does the most extraordinary things under the help and anointing and equipping and encouragement of God. He does speak to Pharaoh. The, they do actually get permission to go out in the desert for a three-day worship festival. They do then run for their lives. The Egyptians do then chase them. They are, the Egyptians are overwhelmed by a natural disaster. And this slave nation whose God's heart has been turned towards becomes a, the nation of, of Israel eventually and occupies the promised land. And it would not have happened if that shepherd on the backside of the desert hadn't at the end of it all been willing, having been very unwilling to go. It's extraordinary, you know, all credit to Moses the man, what God was able to accomplish through this unwilling servant. Absolutely extraordinary. And, and I was moved by that. I've been moved about it because God knows there have been moments of reluctance in me and still are from time to time. And maybe you can identify with one or two of those things that you have used as, a, as a, something to hide behind so that you might avoid or duck doing what God wants you to do. But then I found myself asking a question. You know, if God was able to accomplish so much through an unwilling servant like Moses... Just think what he could accomplish through a willing servant. Wow, if God can do that, if God can save a nation and establish a nation, which to this day is in physical existence, if God can do that through somebody who starts so inauspiciously, what could he do with, with a willing servant? And of course, the wondrous thing is he has done that. He has found a willing servant. And that willing servant is Jesus. Who without a shadow of, of, of remorse, without a moment's argument, without, without any kind of resistance, gave himself for me. It's mind-boggling. Philippians 2 expresses it like this and, and does it so well. And uh, let me just find it. Sorry, I've lost my place in my notes. Just talk amongst yourselves for a minute. Here we go. Jesus Christ, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, not a shepherd in the backside of Sinai, but in very nature God, 2 verse 6. Jesus, equal with God. 
one and the same. Chip off the old block. But he makes himself nothing without a fight. Sure, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to Father, look, if it's possible for me to do it any other way, please, God, I, I, you know, I, I, if it's possible. But if it isn't possible, your will be done. You know, when I was in Israel, you're going to get a few Israel stories. You might as well brace yourself for it. I, I visited the Garden of Gethsemane, and the olive trees there are two, two and a half thousand years old. I found that incredible that these ancient living things, gnarly old olive trees, in their youth, only, you know, a few hundred years old, had the Son of God lean against them. The, the bark of the tree was wetted with his tears. Extraordinary. I, I found that very moving to see these things that had known the tears of the Savior as he wept before God. Oh, God, if there's any other way, please. But not my will, your will be done. An extraordinary thought. This Jesus made himself nothing, became a willing servant, not a reluctant servant, humbled himself and went to the cross. That's why we get excited about Jesus. Moses is worthy of honor, and, and we're right to acknowledge that and speak well of him and look forward to having a chat with him one day. But Jesus, your Jesus, the length he went to, to rescue you and me. He's worthy of our praise and our worship and our honor. He is the willing servant. And we are right to aspire to be like Jesus and not like Moses. Although all of that conversation Moses had is probably part of your and my, my story too. That's why we are excited about Jesus. That's why we want to worship Jesus. That's why... We want it to be absolutely clear we are a Jesus-centered church, rejoicing in his sacrifice, his, his atonement, his resurrection, looking forward to his coming again. We're not just a generic God thing, a bunch of nice people worshiping goodness knows what. We are Christians. We bear his name because Jesus is at the very center of our faith and rightly so. Let me have the band back up. Let's have the band back up. We'll finish. But just stand and pray with me. It occurs to me to say as the band comes forward that you may be on a journey too, a spiritual journey. We're all on a, a journey, aren't we? Uh, and you may be seeking a God who you have encountered in some way and you may not have known. You may be a genuine... You may not be clear or have known that it is actually Jesus that you seek. You, you are getting religious. Your family is saying you're getting all spiritual. You, you are, you've always been a bit interested in God and you've picked up a few things along the way, but you're trying to progress that. Well, Alpha would be a great way to explore that, of course, but I want to give you an opportunity right at the front, not at the end. I want to say to you this morning, if, if you are a seeker after God, a seeker after truth, well then, I'm going to invite you to, to pray to Jesus now. 
He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the gate. And he has drawn you to this place. And so let's just pray. Lord, thank you for the, the, the story about Moses. And we can see bits of ourselves in that. A great man, the friend of God, a humble man. A man who, through whom you accomplished so much. And yet it is in Jesus, the willing servant, that we have a savior. One who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask you now, Jesus, that you would come to us, that you would forgive our sins, our reluctance, our reticence, and our excuses. And that you, Lord God, would make your home, your dwelling place within us. That we would become Jesus-centered, followers and disciples of Jesus, the King of life, the suffering servant, the willing servant. And we ask it all in your name, Jesus.